Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. I am Scott Cullinan, and I am uh, currently the Helmut Schmidt Fellow uh, with the German Marshall Fund uh, based in Berlin, Germany. And it's an absolute pleasure uh, to be here with Visegrad Insight. And uh, I, I'm happy uh, to recommend its products. I've read them uh, and I think they're superb. Hello. Today, we are in the studio together with uh, Malik Banat, uh, our fellow, junior fellow at Visegrad Insight, who has been working tirelessly on the weekly outlook, bringing up stories that uh, are to follow from the past week and the upcoming, and their upcoming leads for, for this week in a democratic security perspective in Central Eastern Europe. Hi, Malik. Hi, Wojciech. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, my name is Wojciech Przybylski, I'm Editor-in-Chief, and we're right after uh, uh, a great discussion last week, um, uh, sponsored by Respublika Nova, part of Respublika Foundation Operations, and uh, focusing on, on Glasgow COP26 Summit. Um, we had uh, excellent speakers, interesting discussion, and there was some political uh, political dynamics in the background of the discussion happening as we as we uh, focused on on understanding what's going on, the events were unfolding. So, Malik, why don't you tell us a few things about what uh, what what was the discussion about and what were the political events uh, were following? Uh, sure. So, the focal point of the discussion was really about climate justice in Central Europe. And uh, what really ignited the conversation was Poland's announcement last 20 at the COP26 summit that it would be actually among the 20 nations that uh, pledged to phase out coal by 2030s. However, it was not too long before Poland took a U-turn on that um, on that pledge. The climate and energy minister Anna Moskva uh, later said that. It would actually it still intends on planning to phase out coal by 2040s, which could be as late as 2049. So a bit of a disappointment there, as you can say, but little surprise. A lot of climate activists, pundits say that you can't trust Warsaw to even uh, sign a piece of paper, uh, criticizing heavily a lot of backlash on, uh, on the, this sort of loud announcement. Uh, talking the talk but not walking the walk and then going back on that talk. Anna Moskva also um, visited Czechia on Friday. Uh, this is in regards to the Turo coal mine affair um, in hopes of uh, restarting talks with uh, the Czech side and uh, according to a draft agreement seen by Politico, Poland is offering a 50 million euro financial contribution um, and this is uh, it, it still hasn't paid the fees that uh, ECG ruled and uh, Wojtek perhaps you can tell about an upcoming ECG ruling yes of course so ECG ruling uh, in that respect here are um, uh, of power paramount importance to the whole political process in Poland internally and Poland's uh, position in Europe uh, in a broader sense um, when things are going to court, uh, are taken to court, then definitely that's a sign that that the normal ways of, of doing things are are not um, not possible. Uh, Poland has um, uh, is expecting a decision, uh, a ruling um, on the, the final ruling regarding the um, the the Turów uh, fee, uh, 
um, this uh, coming days. And, uh, and also uh, this Monday, we are, we, as we are talking on the 8th of November, uh, the same day, uh, so probably after the podcast, uh, before the podcast is released, um, we will have another ruling from the AJC on the, on the case of um, Polish um, uh, Judicial Council. And should the Judicial Council again face some trouble, which, I mean, there are good, there are good grounds uh, in the light also of what we have seen in the past, um, in the past judgments of a European Court, and in the um, in in what we see is uh, obviously the the political meddling in the judicial system in Poland. If we see another court ruling that uh, uh, from that forbids Poland uh, from executing the uh, the reforms of PIS, uh, then expect a new political dynamics uh, into it. And there is, a, uh, there is an ongoing spiral of conflict that Poland uh, is, is embroiled in. It does uh, talk the talk and doesn't walk the walk uh, too often, uh, not, not to risk you know, the, uh, the obvious, the backlash from, from all the partners and from the European Union. Um, so watch this space. That's definitely one of the key areas um, in, in the week that Poland will also face a numerous uh, uh, opportunities for people to, uh, to, um, to go out with their emotions on the streets. On the 11th of, specifically on the 11th of November, there is a national holiday, Independence Day, that has been uh, for a number of years hijacked by the far-right uh, hooligans who took the opportunity to, to drive people appearing on the streets towards uh, violence and nationalist uh, slogans, um, clashing with the police and so on. So that week will definitely have uh, Poland in focus for obvious reasons, but there are other countries, I guess, that we should uh, talk about. Um, a few episodes or two episodes ago, we, we spoke about Bulgaria. Now, Alec, uh, let us remind ourselves why it's in, why it's so important. So Bulgaria is facing in what is the country's already third elections this year, and this time in mid-November it will uh, coincide both presidential and parliamentary legislative elections. And uh, there is um, a surprise newcomer in that party. The uh, we uh, we continue the change, which is led by the incumbent. Um, Finance and economic ministers uh, under Rumen Radev's wing, and who Rumen Radev is expected to be the obvious favor, the favored candidate for the uh, presidential elections. However, the parliamentary elections are a bit more spicy, so maybe we could elaborate a bit more uh yeah the presidential elections will keep uh, the incumbent president the the potential uh, of this election uh is to break a deadlock in uh, what we have seen in Bulgaria and we, what we have also written about in, uh, in terms of Bulgarian elections, to break the deadlock of the, of the parties that some would also, may also consider authoritarian um, type of parties, uh, even though they, believe to, uh, they belong to the mainstream of European politics. But, um, but those parties were em embroiled in uh, contacts with oligarchs, mafia, uh, 
different shady businesses and operations against civil society and the media um, that also resulted in um, uh, in sanctions uh, earlier this year ahead actually ahead of the previous parliamentarian elections uh, from uh, from the US um, that deadlock might be broken if uh, there, the, the new party, we continue the change, which is a surprise party also that we mentioned also uh, comes from the European federalist ideas. Register, there is a party simply registered in, in Bulgaria that upholds this um, perspective, uh, is actually jumping into the next government as a potential kingmaker um, and, and then allows for a successful coalition to, uh, to be formed. Uh, Malik, uh, you wanted to add uh, to this? One interesting development that, uh, that is mentioned uh, in the outlook um, in regards to the elections and perhaps might give some momentum to the uh, We Continue the Change Party is uh, a huge scandal that is rocking the political class in Bulgaria, right? Uh, the caretaker government has exposed the shady scheme of its predecessors in which tens of millions of euros were handed out to private companies under the guise of highway construction. But as it turns out, there is no construction permits or real work done, allegedly, and uh, the money seems to have evaporated through middlemen companies. Um, the Minister of Interior um, of the caretaker government has even claimed that some of this money uh, was used for vote buying. So another potential factor that could be decisive in these elections. Now we'll see. The, we continue the change party polls around 15%, 15-16% according to the latest polls. That makes them potentially second or third stronger and because of the very poor performance also after elections of the other parties, um, including these new startup parties that were unable to form any coalition. They were immediately getting into conflict with the others. Um, that um, offers some prospects, uh, also because the two uh, politicians from the caretaker governments who are the leaders of the new party are, are pretty much respected and performing very well. So, well, yeah, watch this space this week again. And um, perhaps now on to the, um, the interviews uh, sections, or before we just uh, let you listen to this week's three interviews, uh, two of them are sponsored uh, by the Visegrad International Visegrad Fund, part of our uh, Western Balkans uh, foresight. We should mention that it's also in in our uh, it's also in our um, weekly outlook information about the visit of Viktor Orban in um, in Serbia and in the context of uh, these events. It's also very important that the tensions and conflict potential is rising in Bosnia and Herzegovina with uh, less and less tools of you for in, in for of the european union countries or um, to to simply get involved and uh, to find solutions um, solutions to to the problems uh, there on the ground but at the same time when we mention hungary we should uh, uh, let me uh, let me rephrase that uh, uh, i should announce uh, now marta spala from center of eastern studies and milos solaya professor of banja luka university both interviewed by our program uh, manager uh, for the neighborhood um, uh, western balkan system pa uh, partnership Ta tanya polia gruch tatiana polia gruch 
who is interviewing both. But when I mentioned Hungary, I wanted to add immediately one other uh, uh, spot. I think you picked it up from um, uh, from one of the reports, Malik. What's this? What's the news of Hungary uh, that we should also be aware of? Yeah, so uh, this is a bit more long term, but what Hungary um, has in common with countries like Turkey, Russia, Serbia is that it has been snubbed from uh, U.S. President Joseph Biden's flagship summit for democracy that is scheduled for early December. And uh, it seems to be the only EU member state not to be invited. So Correct. It, it is the only EU member not invited and second NATO member not invited because uh, Turkey is also not invited to the party. We'll, we'll put all the links, relevant links to to this information, of course, in the um, in the background. But uh, we'll start perhaps with with the interview with our special guest uh, for today for this week's podcast called Scott Cooliney, um, long term uh, civil servant uh, staffer from uh, from U.S. Congress, serving on the Foreign Committee, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, and uh, currently um, currently uh, residing in Germany at a fellowship at the German Marshall Fund, who is talking uh, about both the hearing of the. Uh, Helsinki Commission in the Congress, and uh, he hints as as to what what the uh, what the purpose of the summit of democracy might be and the out um, and what what to expect of it um, in December. So stay tuned, and now we'll go into the interviews. Thanks so much, Malik. Thank you. On November the 3rd, Helsinki Commission of the US Congress has held a hearing on the rule of law in Poland and in Hungary. Why this hearing took place exactly now in this week and what's the bigger picture? What are the takeaways uh, also from uh, what we heard during that hearing? We are asking these questions to our special guest uh, today, Scott Kalani. Scott, what's your take on the hearing this week? Thank you so much. Um, the first thing I would say to understand this hearing uh, is that it was not a one-off and that this is one event in a, a series of events uh, that Congress has been doing over the past nearly 10 years to express concern about the political trajectory um, in, some, in some countries, mainly Hungary uh, and Poland. Um, and it's been not just hearings, um, it's been briefings, um, resolutions, um, statements. Um, in the case of the Helsinki Commission, uh, this concern in the case of Hungary goes back at least until uh, 2013, when they held a hearing on the constitutional changes that Prime Minister Orban uh, was putting forward at that time. I know in 2015, I was involved in a hearing as part of the House Foreign Affairs Committee looking at the case of Hungary. Uh, and that same committee returned to that topic again in 2019. So uh, the hearing last week um, was really uh, one in a, actually a very long series uh, of events, gatherings, and various expressions um, of, of congressional concern. What were your uh, takeaways? What would you highlight uh, from the from the hearing on Tuesday? Uh, fine, the Helsinki committee, uh, the Helsinki Commission has been um, 
in you know for for I would say even more than ten years because you know in the in the long past I mean several decades back it was also focused on on state of democracy or lack of democracy uh, uh, lack of of, of uh, respect for human rights um, in in the communist Poland or Hungary that was that was way back that uh, it came back uh, to to focus again on those countries that was a worrying signal 10 years ago but what was exactly the subject of the hearing uh, this week what are your takeaways first off you know i can definitely say as someone who has been present in many hearings helped put together hearings um listened to many hearings um that the quality of the testimony offered um was really exceptional and all three of the witnesses put forward what I thought um, was really superb um, analysis and commentary uh, about, um, about the, the problems that Congress um, and the broader community is, is seeing in political developments in each of those countries. For me, um, I think this was significant in that the conversation was not just describing the problem. And I think in Washington, we have spent several years um, observing and describing and understanding the changes and what motivates those changes. And I think this hearing um, was important because it began to move um, beyond that. And I think these these are discussions that have been happening um, in private for some time, but are now moving into more public spaces. And, and I, I really appreciate the commentary offered um, by Heather Connolly about her discussion of, um, of imposing costs. And I believe the phrase she used is that the U.S. must, must show the toughest of love. Um, and and, and I, I think that, um, that sediment is, is growing, um, is having increasing appeal and increasing attraction um, in Washington, that just expressions of concern are, are not enough, and that this conversation is moving into um, into a next phase, where um, perhaps there does have to be um, some some level, some sort uh, of cost imposed, and that um, governments, uh, Fidesz or Peace, uh, cannot continue um, to go forward denigrating um, the rule of law um, and the principles of democracy, um, that 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 cannot continue um, longer into the future without a stronger response. Um, Congress and the U.S. has made their positions very clear um, through numerous statements. And even we also see this um, in the upcoming um, Summit of Democracies to be held in early December, um, where very notably Hungary is not invited. Um, and so I think we're increasingly getting to a point where uh, there is an understanding of the problems. Uh, and now we're asking what can be done about them. Sure, we will focus. I'll ask you some questions about the upcoming summit for democracies or summit for democracy, <laughs> right? As an, as the ideal. But, uh, but um, uh, let me uh, come back to what you said and uh, what was offered in the testimony um, about the, the toughest of love. Um, 
how can we imagine that um, the conversation, the hearing from the commission, from Congress, um, would impact U.S. policy um, seen from the U.S. administration? So last week's hearing and, and congressional hearings of this type in general, I would say serve two purposes. Um, first, they're a, a signal of congressional intent and concern, both to uh, governments and actors abroad, as well as to other parts of, of the U.S. government, the executive branch. Uh, and, and secondly, they serve a purpose of, of helping to educate members about, about the issue and helping to build coalitions, um, uh, you know, bicameral and cross-party coalitions um, in Congress um, to take some action. And so I, so I think uh, it's important in that way. You know, it's, it's a signal um, to, to the executive branch about where Congress is. And of course, in foreign policy, Congress does have a role to play, uh, not always the leading role, but a significant role in, in authorizing what activities uh, the State Department can undertake, as well as funding um, those activities. Um, you know, and as an example of this, we saw um, uh, last year the return of Radio Free Europe to having a Hungarian language service, an effort that was in many ways um, really pushed forward um, by the U.S. Congress and, and pushed the executive branch um, to do that. And so I, I think this is um, a reflection of a growing, um, even consensus um, within the U.S. government, both, on, both in Congress on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch. Um, and you know, if we think back, um, this period of democratic backsliding um, in Europe or in some parts of Europe um, is now in probably at least its third U.S. administration. Um, and during the Obama administration and during the Trump administration, um, I think Congress and the executive branch were for different reasons uh, not in total agreement about um, the analysis of the problem and of what to do about the problem. Um, and I think now as we come up on this um, democracy summit, we're increasingly in a place where there is a growing consensus, both on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch, that this is really a problem, this problem is not self-correcting, um, and the US can no longer be an, an actor that only expresses um, concern but has to act on that concern. Okay, let's speak about this potential action and take uh, and take the example of the upcoming Summit for Democracy. That is going to take place 9 to 10 of December this year in a form of a virtual meeting, I believe. And then it is going to be followed next year, hopefully when it's going to be possible, in a form of an in-person meeting. But what it is going to be and how impactful uh, do you expect it uh, to be? in terms of, um, uh, you know, g g correcting the course of democratic backsliding, if not reversing it? That's certainly the million dollar question. And, and, and I'm asking the same question. And I, I think the how that answer turns out uh, is going to be very important. Um, you know, here, you know, I, I would say very clearly that um, the U.S. wants uh, the nations, the countries, of Europe, including Hungary and Poland, um, to be secure, to be peaceful, um, and to be prosperous. 
Um, and we want this for the people of those countries. Um, we've, we've made a commitment to that um, for many decades to seeing that, uh, that, goal, that goal be achieved. Um, but those, um, those attributes, having, having these countries, these governments um, be democratic, be prosperous, um, be secure, um, also helps them um, to be better partners and better allies for the U.S. and so that we can act together uh, to face and overcome the challenges of the 21st century. And when that prosperity, that democracy, that economic security um, is threatened, either by external actors or by internal developments, that hampers the ability of these countries um, to be full allies uh, and, and, and to be and to reach their full potential um, in their partnership um, with the U.S. Um, and so, and so, really, uh, this this is something that is, I think, of very high importance and very high national interest for the U.S. Um, sometimes in the past, this discussion of democracy has been siloed as it's a topic that exists next to conversations about energy security or, or a conversation that exists next to a conversation about NATO or, or Russia. Um, I think this summit really reflects that these topics are, are very much linked, very much integrated, that when rule of law backslides, when there's a growth in, 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 in corruption, um, that these are, are areas that are not fully open to U.S. investment that our companies can't act together, can't always trade together, um, that our, our, our militaries you know, might, might increasingly not be able to rely on each other. Um, and you know, these are things that are, are maybe unpleasant, but we are increasingly coming to the realization that, that this backsliding matters and needs to be confronted. And so um, this is what many people are looking uh, to the Summit of Democracies next month and looking and looking for ideas about the way forward. Scott, thank you so much for being with us and uh, for sharing your thoughts and comments. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure um, to be here. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing how some of these issues play out in the coming weeks and months ahead. So thank you so much for the conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Tatiana Polagruic, and I'm leading Western Balkans program at Visegrad Insight Respublika Foundation. While following the most recent developments in the Balkans, it seems that situation in Bosnia is becoming increasingly fragile and a full-blown political crisis is emerging, perhaps the biggest in the last two decades. Milorad Dodik, who is the leader of the Republika Srpska entity of Bosnia and Herzegovina, has been demonstrating a disconcerting stance in the Bosnian government blocking a number of decisions by its presidency. He has also been announcing more independency for Republika Srpska. To understand the situation a little bit better and bring it closer to you, I'm speaking with two experts. The first one is Professor Milos Sholaya, who teaches international relations, but also Balkan regional policies at the University of Banja Luka in Bosnia. And Marta Špala, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Eastern Studies in Warsaw, Poland. Before I start the conversation, I would like to credit International Visegrad Fund, who supports this podcast. So, Professor Solaya, welcome to our podcast, and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me. I'll start with the basic question. 
What triggered this dire political situation in Bosnia recently? Could you give us some background here, please? political situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina is deeply related with relations between three constitutional nations, Bosniak Serbs and Croats, and it is uh, since the 1991, before the war. And even they can peace accord, try to reconcile to all these three nations and to reconcile their policies. It didn't succeed. It's also very important to say that just the relations between communities and particularly between individuals are not so so hard and so related with the, that national relations. But when it comes to political questions, if some very sensitive questions are on the agenda, in that way it usually comes uh, different opinions, different attitudes, different interests and goals. And that, that is the reason that the uh, situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina sometimes is a full deadlock. My next question would be, how much serious is Dodik about his his actions, about his uh, his goal here, do you think? Yeah, Dodik is a very strong politician in terms of Bosnia-Herzegovina and dimensions. So all his uh, statements and the dealings and whatever is are very uh, closely related to entire situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina, whatever it looks like. But uh, generally, as a very ex- well-experienced politician and uh, very good, with very high knowledge about the political situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina and absolutely aware about his own possibilities and possibilities of the Republic of Srpska, he sometimes goes on the eve of the night. And uh, that is the reason that sometimes he raises some, some very um, strong rhetoric in terms of separation, but he doesn't think that seriously. I think that uh, he, that is more uh, in, in terms of general relations in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And the, the thing which is sometimes uh, forbidden or... Well, then, uh, sometimes the thing which is uh, maybe by purpose or not uh, uh, neglected uh, or forbidden, it is that, that all the threats are usually comes in entire context. It's also uh, a strong uh, anti-peace and the anti, uh, anti-Bosnia-Herzegovina rhetoric on other two sides, like Bosnia and Croat politicians. So, we have to consider all that statements and all that attitudes in the entire context of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And it is actually visible on, uh, uh, since the last session of Security Council United Nations, which is uh, absolutely clear proof that uh, there are different opinions in terms of Bosnia-Herzegovina and sometimes even big powers are able to agree between themselves about some documents and some maybe new moments in the entire situation. I cannot but ask, in whose name do you think the leader of Republika Srpska pursues his, his policies? Honestly speaking, he is on power in the last 15 years, even more, and in different positions, of course, and that means that uh, he is usually asserted on elections and people who 
take part in the elections, so just strongly support him. And we can explain that as the political will of the people, of the majority of the people in the Republic of Serbia. Thank you. Uh, so there has been also a criminal case opened uh, against Dodik for disrupting the constitutional order, according to the prosecutor's office of Bosnia. How efficient do you think uh, it can be, this criminal case? Do you think it will lead to anything? I think that it is still not the case. It is just, uh, we say, application for some or some indication that uh, there were some criminal things and these criminal things are related to his political position and political statements. So it is something that it is... It should be put forward on uh, on the agenda of that agencies and all these institutions that deal with uh, such a criminal cases. But actually, it is uh, it is very hard, almost impossible, to consider some uh, sanctions and maybe to have any position which is able to to execute. Any decision by, for instance, that institutions, I don't know which institution, either political or, or judiciary or whatever, but I think that it is impossible to expect that some institution or some police could have come from Federation Bosnia-Herzegovina to Republic of Srpska to execute that, particularly in, in, in light of last uh, purchases, last events as I have already mentioned the Security Council, United Nations Security Council session, and so it's a, it's more political thing, and so it, it is very hard to expect that it could have produced any result. Thank you very much, Professor Shalaya, for your time and for, for your insights. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for your invitation and to have opportunity. I'm now turning to Marta Spala from the Center for Eastern Studies, a Polish expert with extensive experience on the Western Balkans. Marta, Professor Shalaya has provided us with an analysis from sort of internal point of view, while with you I wanted to touch upon the international perspective of the events in Bosnia. Perhaps you could provide us a short overview about the international response to the political crisis there. The response, like when we when we think about what is happening uh, now in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and that uh, Milorad Dodik, the leader of the Serb community, is de facto threatening of uh, like tre- he's threatening international community of de facto secession of Republika Srpska, the reaction of the international community is rather weak. Uh, so we somehow, we as the international community got used to this harsh rhetoric in, in case of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, so this kind of cl- rhetoric clashes usually uh, there is no reaction from the from the international community to it. I think like we we, we somehow accept that this uh, this clashes occur from time to time, uh, and it is mainly for internal use. But I think this time it is the situation is different. So it's it's quite worrying that we have the common letter of US and uh, EU, uh, which uh, condemn this 
like the the the, the dates of the of Milorad Dodik, uh, but uh, n- nothing more has happened. This is mainly because now we are in the process of um, negotiation uh, of electoral reform. Some, 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 somehow, what is um, the most imp- what is most important for the national community to somehow achieve. Um, to achieve some kind of agreement between political elites in in Bosnia and Herzegovina concerning electoral and constitutional reform uh, in that country. We are heading towards the election uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina in 2022. Uh, And the electoral uh, law is uh, not in compliance with the ruling of European Court of Human Rights. Uh, so the main, main priority of the international community was somehow to, to, to force or to convince um, uh, elites to, uh, to introduce some kind of the reform. Uh, so that's why this reaction towards the, the statement of uh, Milola Dodik was rather, was rather weak. Uh, last week we have the negotiation. We have the the, the representative of US and uh, EU both in Zagreb, like in Zagreb and in Belgrade and in Sarajevo, negotiating the future uh, reform of the country. Uh, and somehow the international didn't want to to be too critical uh, t- towards Dodik. Uh, in my opinion, it was the mistake because this somehow Dodik, uh, with uh, these threats, uh, he crossed a lot of red lines, uh, and he is like de facto threat to, to territorial integrity and to stability of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And although I think that he's not uh, planning or he, 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 it's not that he's heading towards really military conflict, he's rather testing uh, how, how far he can go. Um, I think in this tense situation in Bosnia Herzegovina, uh, the situation can really quickly deteriorate. So this is the risk for stability of the country. That uh, with all these military, like all these drills, uh, the the Republika Srpska police conducted uh, in Yahorina in the middle of of October, it's really uh, create some. In the society in Bosnia Herzegovina, this uh, like this it it recalls the the situation from the nineties and the siege of Sarajevo. So I think that in these circumstances, really some some side and the people can overreact, and uh, this is really dangerous for the for the country. I see. I see. Thank you. Uh, do you think that maybe office of the high representative could offer some effective solutions? I think this is this is this is also the part of the problem because the part of the conflict is the high representative representative as such. So for twelve years we have some we have rather weak uh, high representative. Uh, Austrian diplomat Valentin Insko, uh, but but this year uh, it has changed. So we have the new high representative, which is the German diplomat uh, uh, Christian Schmidt uh, from the ruling 
to the EU party from, from, from Germany, but the problem was that he was appointed as high representative without acceptance of Russia. So the, the rule of pro and the procedures allows to do that, but it was the good habit that Russia or like usually accepted the, the candidates for the high representative. What is now happening is that Russia uh, and Milorad Dodik and uh, Republika Srpska leadership, uh, they are uh, they are not accepting the, the 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 new high representative, and they are like undermining uh, uh, his power. They are saying that he was. Uh, chosen uh, in a not legitimate way, uh, so, so actually that he has no power in Bosnia-Herzegovina anymore. Uh, what we also are observing now, this week, uh, we will have the, uh, the voting uh, in Security Council um, about renewal of the mandate of stability forces in Bosnia-Herzegovina, EU4 and that requires acceptance from Russia's side. And we see that from, from, the, from the discussion and from what is leaked to the, to the media that uh, Russia is demanding or it is, uh, it's set some condition uh, to, to, to approve or at least not to vote against uh, the, the renewal of the mandate, that there will be no mention about uh, how representative um, in the resolution of a Security Council. So what we can observe uh, now is that uh, Serbian leadership together with Russia Actually, they are actively working against her representative. And although, you know, his uh, position uh, it's not uh, as strong as it was during the nineties or, or at the beginning of the century, he was working uh, on like act, like de facto killing this institution that that it uh, won't be. Um, able to introduce any kind of decision in case of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So some, somehow Dodik wants to not only be independent from the central government, but also from the international community, which according to the Dayton Agreement oversight the, the stability and uh, stability in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So, so that's, that's, that's why I don't think the high representative has the authority to to present uh, any kind of solution. I see. Obviously, Russia is watching the case very closely. Mm -hmm. And my yeah. next, yeah, my next question would be about um, Visegrad Group. Actually, perhaps in few words, uh, do you think? This group could play some role in helping to resolve this conflict, this this crisis. I think this uh, this is also some some kind of a, of problem. So so for example, Poland uh, is and and was always uh, perceived as neutral player in case of the Balkans and it can play this kind of role, but in case of uh, the countries like uh, 
especially Hungary, uh, which is now closely cooperated with the Belgrade, uh, Belgrade uh, leadership and the government in Belgrade, and that this is this is how the region perceives Hungary. That is the player who who is supporting Serbs in the region. So so Hungary is not uh, not. Um, not seen or not perceived as a neutral player, and it also had had like we we also have to have in mind that in case of Hungary, we are observing really harsh anti-Muslim rhetoric. So so when we will take this these two facts, really I don't think that Bishopred Group as a whole can play the the decisive role in in. in how resolving this kind of this this kind of of crisis, the because yeah it is not seen as neutral player in the region. But how do you think this situation, this crisis, will end up? Uh, I think that it it will mainly depends on the U.S. policy uh, t- towards the region. We can uh, we could observe some positive signs from the from the U.S. side. Uh, so we have we now we are we will have the new ambassador um, in Belgrade, which will be the Christopher Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was engaged in solving Bosnia crisis in the 90s and also in Kosovo crisis. So he is coming back from retirement um, uh, to be ambassador in Belgrade. So it is somehow signed that the new administration or Biden administration. It really uh, uh, want to engage seriously in like solving the frozen conflict in the region, mainly Bosnia and Herzegovina and and, and Kosovo. Uh, and you know, Joe Biden, he has a lot of experience. He ha- he has visited the region a couple of times, so there is a huge hope. Uh, um, among the people in the region and among the international observers, that that US will really engage uh, in in the region, but you know it's still to be seen. Uh, so, so they are signed, but there there is uh, there is no dates. There is a problem in case of European Union because the European Union has the problem with creating common policy uh, towards the Western Balkans. Uh, it is somehow ironic that the common foreign policy was created because of the Balkans, because of the 90s. And now, yes. you know, the, 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 the European Union is, is in in this area, is, is in the such, such crisis that uh, it can't agree on the enlargement policy. We can see that there is no uh, no determination among the European Union members to to finish the the, the enlargement to uh, to incorporate Western Balkans to the to the European Union. But there is also no no agreement among the members what kind of policy EU should impose or should conduct towards the Western Balkans, how the how Kosovo crisis should be resolved and what we would like to achieve in case of Bosnia and Herzegovina. We have no government uh, in Germany. So this is also the, the factor which is weakening the, 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 the EU policy and, you know, it also enables uh, local leader uh, 
to uh, yeah to, to to conduct this kind of policy which only deepens the the crisis in the region so so i think what, what are the the like i can i can say what are the aims uh, of the local leader i think that they are perfectly okay with the status quo uh, Dodik would like to have uh, less control from the Sarajevo, especially in terms of judiciary and prosecution. So, so he he would like to be de facto independent without proclaiming independence. But uh, you know what, what we would like to have, like no institution from Sarajevo would control it, uh, control him. He would like to have his uh, own military forces uh, to you know, strength his position and he would like to call up more taxes uh, to like to to, uh, to spend it uh, on his own uh, needs. Um, in terms of other leaders, uh, I also think that uh, that, you know, this kind of, uh, this kind of crisis is especially convenient to, to them because he draws attention of the citizens from the real problem uh, of the citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina. That means the COVID crisis, uh, which was handled very badly in case of Bosnia. This is economic problems. This is mass migration. So, so somehow all the parties, like governing elites, are, are quite okay that, that we have this kind of crisis we can you know focus on national issue not not on how to improve the situation uh, in the country but but that's uh, so what what will happen um, i i think it will mainly depend on the reaction of us and how how much this country would like to really um, uh, re really engage in the region and if the US and also European Union are ready to sanction to, to impose sanction against uh, the, the, the political uh, elites in Bosnia who are working against the stability of the country. Marta, thank you very much for joining us and offering such a wonderful analysis. Thank you very much. I'm also thanking International Visegrad Fund for supporting the production of this podcast. Follow Visegrad Insights Western Balkans Futures program on our website and social media. Thank you.